Welcome to the Permaculture for the Future podcast. I'm your host, Josh Robinson. The world is full of negative news, and the planet seems to be in an ecological crisis. And this can be downright disheartening and disenfranchising because we feel that there's nothing that each one of us can do as an individual that can make any difference. Well, I'm here to provide a different perspective, to tell a new story. The Permaculture for the Future podcast is all about spreading positive and impactful stories, tips, and ways that each one of us can transition into a regenerative lifestyle where we can make an ecological impact. We talk about simple ways to make lifestyle changes as we interview authors, teachers, and other folks that are collectively healing ourselves and the planet. So if you want to make an ecological impact, stick around because this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode number three of the Permaculture for the Future podcast. I'm your host, Josh Robinson, and today we're talking all about water harvesting. We're going to talk about the potential and look at the resources that we all have available to us, even in a dry climate. So my guest today is none other than Brad Lancaster, the author of a couple of books that are absolutely game changers when it comes to water harvesting. Now, I've known Brad for probably close to 15 years or more, and he has never failed to inspire and educate. He's been a great mentor over these years. Any questions that we have related to water harvesting, this is the person that we have to talk to. And his books are just gems when it comes to being able to share this information. So Brad Lancaster is a dynamic teacher, consultant, and designer of regenerative systems that sustainably enhance local resources and our global potential. He's the author of the award-winning, best-selling book series, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, and Brad has just released full-color, revised, and expanded editions of these books in both print and now ebook formats, and they're available at a deep discount directly from Brad's website, which will be linked here in the show notes, which is harvestingrainwater.com. Now, Brad is also the co-founder of Desert Harvesters, which strives to repopulate Tucson's urban core with rain-irrigated indigenous food plants. Brad's taught throughout North America as well as in the Middle East, Asia, Europe, Africa, and Australia. And his hometown projects have included working with the city of Tucson and other municipalities to legalize, incentivize, and provide guidance on water harvesting systems, demonstration sites, and policy. He has likewise collaborated with state agencies to promote practices that transform costly local wastes into free local resources. And Brad's aim is always to boost communities' true health and wealth by using simple overlapping strategies to augment the region's hydrology, ecosystems, and economies. These are living systems which we all depend on. Brad lives his talk on an oasis-like demonstration site he created and continually improves with his brother's family and neighbors in downtown Tucson, Arizona. On this eighth of an acre and surrounding public right-of-way, 
they harvest 100,000 gallons of rainwater a year where just 11 inches per year fall from the sky. But it doesn't end there. The potential of that water is then integrated with simultaneous harvest of sun, wind, shade, and fertility. Brad is motivated in his work by the tens of thousands of people that he has helped inspire to do likewise, go further, and continue our collective evolution. So without further ado, here's our discussion with Brad. All right. Well, welcome, Brad, to the Permaculture for the Future podcast. So excited to have you on today. For people that aren't familiar with what you do and some of the projects that you've been involved in, do you want to give a little brief background on who you are? Sure. Well, my bias and expertise comes from where I live, which is the Sonoran Desert on the Arizona-Mexico border. So it's a dry land environment. And Water is a very important resource, all too often deemed a scarce resource, but in actuality, it's abundant if we would just change the way we manage it. So instead of mismanaging it, we mimic the planet's hydrologic cycle to cycle it as many times as possible in a way that elevates or at least does not worsen the quality of that water. So in that spirit and wanting to be part of the solution as opposed to part of the water problem in my community, I started practicing water harvesting permaculture in the early 1990s. I created two books, best-selling books, uh, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, Volumes 1 and 2. And uh, I just this year came out with dramatically revised, expanded, full-color Sweet additions, meeting the vision finally that I always had for these books and exceeding that vision. And I do consulting, design, and teaching all over the world. But what I really love is that it was just working in my backyard that enabled that regional and international work. And really, anyone can do this because it's just conscious shovel work as opposed to the unconscious shovel work. So it costs no more than the price of a shovel if you're willing to do the work yeah. to make a dramatic difference and create some abundance. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll get into your uh, books and, and what you can expect in those. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you from your experience, I mean, obviously you're, you're passionate, you're driven around water and you've been traveling around the world and seeing a lot of the problems that we have with our water infrastructure and our water systems from just lack of clean water or just mismanagement. Do you want to just, again, briefly talk about what some of the main problems that are out there and kind of what is it about those that are driving you in your current work? Yeah, well, the biggest problem is all too often we're not holding on to the gift of the, the rainfall when it falls. We're instead getting rid of it as quickly as possible, thereby creating flooding issues downstream, creating water scarcity issues where we are, um, and also worsening the quality of the water because we're getting rid of it so quickly that it's the speed of that water enables it to pick up sediments and pollutants and whatnot. So my work is really a reaction, a response to that, and inspired in part by my realization that everywhere in the world where there is a dry climate or a wet climate with a dry season, and it can be a very short dry season, there is a rich history and traditions 
of water harvesting. Unfortunately, many of those traditions and practices were forgotten in the 1930s and around there, around the world, when very uh, powerful uh, mechanical water pumps were introduced. Um, and we thought we didn't have to live in balance anymore. And we started to forget. But now I'm finding all over the world, these water harvesting strategies are in a, in a resurgence because the, the wells that the pumps pump the water from and the rivers that the pumps pump water from are going dry because we are now extracting water at a more rapid rate than we're naturally recharging, reinvesting, or infiltrating it back into the system. And the great thing about these traditional water harvesting systems, they his historically would do that. They would reinvest the water as close as possible to where it fell into the system and cycle it as many times as possible. So that's what inspires me. And it's not just the old traditional strategies, it's many newer innovations and whatnot of colleagues and practitioners around the world. So it, the great thing is it's, it's continually evolving. So I strive to share a lot of those evolutions. Yeah. And I know you're not one to really dwell on these problems and whatnot, but looking more past that and through that and understanding like there are potentials and solutions that are lying within this for people that are just wanting to get started with water harvesting and actually making a difference in their own local communities, what do you feel are some just simple strategies that people can uh, utilize to get started? Yeah. Well, let me kind of answer that in a, what might at first seem a roundabout way. But for me, water is just the bait. Okay. You, you can enter from whatever your passion or interest is. Okay. Ultimately, what I'm just trying to do is I'm trying to recognize previously unseen or forgotten potentials, opportunities, resources that were dwindling, that were worsening, and to flip that. So how can we, instead of worsen or dwindle them, how can we enhance them? How can we collaborate with as opposed to fight them? And I just come to water because I'm from a dry land environment. But elsewhere, maybe that's human power transport, maybe it's food forestry, maybe it's tapping into indigenous knowledge of ethnobotanical uses of your plants, maybe it's passive sun and shade harvesting, I don't know, you know, whatever, whatever you want. Um, and I think you'll have more success if whatever you're addressing can also directly address some, some immediate needs. So on the water standpoint, I like to begin by just creating what I call water harvesting earthworks or rain gardens. So all too often I see throughout the U.S., particularly the Western U.S., well, all over the U.S., people create these burial mound-like landforms, and then they plant on top of it. But everything moves with gravity. So the water moves away, the soil moves away, the fertility moves away. It's, it's ridiculous. It's completely backwards. So uh, I flip that. So instead of planting on or beside mounds, I plant within or beside basin shapes, which I see as nets for much more than water. Because again, everything moves with gravity unless there's money behind it. Mm -hmm. So with the basin shapes, I'm gonna collect rainfall, I'm gonna collect runoff. I can collect all waters. I can collect gray water from household drains, condensate from air conditioners, whatever. And I can move it all for free with gravity. But I also capture leaf drop, bird droppings, 
So I'm collecting organics, which is food and habitat for more soil life, which then contributes to a living sponge. So whatever water I grab is much more rapidly infiltrated. So I'm not storing any water on the surface. It's all below the surface. So there's no puddles, no evaporative loss from surface water, and no mosquito breeding, okay? So I'm actually reducing mosquito issues. I'm reducing Zika and West Nile and all that by harvesting water. So anytime we are on the right track, a great sign of that is that the domino theory is working in our favor. And all these unanticipated benefits start to appear and, and manifest, as opposed to all these unanticipated problems and headaches. Yeah, I find that definitely being the case with the water harvesting. And it, it reduces flooding while minimizing drought. I'm growing more vegetation, which then is mitigating climate change locally and globally. So by having more of a living sponge of moisture-rich vegetation, the radiant heat and energy from the sun is immediately dissipated. Whereas if it hits asphalt or bare earth, it's uh, just going to bake that surface and it's going to bounce back up and hit the pollutant haze and bounce back at us again. And it's this, it's this horrible negative cycle. But with the vegetation, I'm immediately starting to cool things off. And then the moisture in the soil and the vegetation evapotranspires and evaporates. And that radiant heat of the sun is transformed. Its energy is transformed in a way that the, the temperature disappears because all that heat energy coming in from the sun is converted to enable the transformation of a liquid water to a vapor. So changing the phase state of water from liquid to vapor through evaporation, evapotranspiration, that even further dissipates and cools things. And then on up, that moisture goes, and then there's these beneficial bacteria in the stomata of the vegetation's leaves that are the ideal cloud seeds, these particles that are uptaken in the highest levels of the atmosphere around which clouds uh, form. They're the best cloud seeds, way better than anything we've ever thought of to manufacture. So then we get more clouds further reflecting incoming radiant heat from the sun and generating rain, which further cools things again. So we get this wonderful, yeah, just system where things are just, we're getting multiple beneficial things, one after another, just dun, 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 dun. So, mm -hmm. And the best part for me, that was a lot I just threw out there. So let's simplify it. This is all about living systems. It's about what's alive. And that's what juices me. That's what gives me joy because I'm not creating a dead manufactured tank that's just going to slowly erode over time. Tanks are good, but they're not the ideal for me. The ideal for me is the living systems because they get better over time. The vegetation grows. It germinates new plants. That's what I love. That's where I feel I'm collaborating with a larger, more powerful system. And uh, I, yeah, I don't find anything more rewarding than that. Yeah. I mean, those are all super amazing benefits when we start to include hydrating our particularly uh, dry climates of the West here. Yeah. Not to mention when we do start to increase the, high, uh, the water capacity of our soils and start to build these living systems, we have a connection back to the carbon cycle because we're essentially taking that atmospheric carbon dioxide, which we all know is currently in excess, yes. and getting that back down into the soil through the, the root exudates and leaf drop and you know on and on. 
So there is a huge potential there. It seems like this in this connection between water and the carbon cycle. And I've even been hearing a lot lately about the hydrologic cycle being a better indicator of, you know, where we are in the climate change kind of areas. Have you? Yeah, I'm, I'm not, not sure if I'm going to be pronouncing his name correctly, but Walter Jenny, J-E-H-N-E, he's got a lot of great presentations on YouTube. He's a microbiologist and climatologist from Australia. And he and colleagues of his, they say that 95% of our planet's thermal regulation is managed by the hydrologic cycle, mm. not the carbon cycle. Mm-hmm. Though they say, you know, we absolutely need to pay attention to and address the buildup of carbon in our atmosphere. But the most powerful way we can change things for the better is to collaborate with the hydrologic cycle. Okay, some just real quick examples of that. So Tucson is ranked number three in terms of cities in the U.S. that are uh, have rising temperatures. Mm. Okay, Las wow. Vegas is number one. Wow. But it's happening all over. You know, it doesn't matter what your ranking is. <laughs> <laughs> I would say the bulk of that temperature rise is due to us scraping and removing the living sponge of carbon sequestering plant life and soil life and replacing it with bare dead earth comparatively or paved soil. So yeah, we've removed the cooling mechanism. So of course it's going to get hotter. And then even worse, we've replaced the cooling mechanism with a heating mechanism. (laughs) And then even worse, we've replaced it with a heating mechanism that takes huge amounts of fossil fuel burning to remove the sponge you know, with the backhoes, the bulldozers, the cement mixers, the mining, you know, bring in the limestone, which you cook and furnaces to make cement. And yeah, uh, so it's like, man, what a, yeah, we, it's messed up. So anytime I can bring back or grow a pocket of that life, that feels great. And I immediately feel the difference because the temperatures in summer are cooler and in winter at night, they're warmer. Because that vegetation, that life's insulating me from all extremes. And just want to share too, so I do a lot of my work in the urban setting, but I've been lucky enough to be able to work with a mentor of mine, Bill Zedike, who does a lot of work in rural areas. He comes from a background of doing wildlife habitat restoration. And a lot of what he does inspired the revisions of my new books because he's got a lot of strategies that are even easier to build, lower cost than stuff I had in my initial additions. So I've Mm. replaced the more energy intensive, expensive, less effective strategies with a lot of his and colleagues of his less expensive, more effective, easier to build strategies. And I've had the opportunity to visit him and colleagues like Van Clothier and Craig Sponholtz and others and go and see where they're initially doing work on a degraded and dead wetland because we've lost over 90% of our wetlands in the Western U.S. due to mismanagement of the watershed. And with just very simple one rock high structures where you first place native grass seed before you place the rock and you only do a one rock high so that the vegetation can grow through and between the rock, whereas gabions that are multi-rock high, they don't allow vegetation to grow through it. Mm-hmm. So you're forever dependent on this human-made thing 
Whereas with Bill Zedike stuff, these are just temporary measures that nudge the ecological system in the right direction. So vegetation grows through the rock and becomes a living comb of slowing, spreading, and infiltrating more of the water, capturing more sediment, capturing more organic matter, sequestering more carbon, which then enables more seed to germinate, grow more plants. So it just gets better and better over time as opposed to an eroding gabion. So it's been phenomenal to see these wetlands regenerated. And the wetlands, I mentioned this in part because you're in California, people are freaked out about fire in California. The wetlands are phenomenal in reducing fire threat too, because even in the dry season, they hold so much moisture within the soil and the system that you don't have drought-stressed and dry, tinder-like vegetation. Instead, you have well-hydrated, non-flammable vegetation. So this is essential in reducing fire threat, in sequestering carbon, in mitigating climate change, in enhancing our hydrology, raising our groundwater levels instead of depleting them. And it just, and it keeps going. You know, I can keep going with that list. But I was originally drawn to how do you bring back a wetlands? And then all these other benefits I started becoming aware of right on. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, yeah. those are always the beauty of like, when you do start to kind of partner with the uh, living systems and realize there's those, you know, domino effect, like you were talking about of like, you know, solving that one problem leading to the solutions of many others. And yeah. I love that, that elegance. Yeah. And there's another lesson in that, in that when I was first introduced to Bill's work, I was like, no way in hell this works. Like, <laughs> that is, that is too simple. It, it's too small. And because I came from the permaculture world that was enamored with, I would say, heroic, wall-like, dam-like gabions. Mm. That was the education I'd come from. So that, that was my bias. But he doesn't create walls. He creates very subtle, very low speed humps. Okay. And that, as I mentioned before, are overtaken by vegetation. So then they disappear. And I guess the lesson there is... We should jump in to challenges to our preconceptions instead of bat them away. We should dive in and explore and say, well, what is this? What's really going on here? And does this really work? And if so, how? And how mm -hmm. is it different from how I've been doing things? That's the way we can really learn and evolve. And um, that has enabled me to get out of burnout and back in to turn on. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm, I'm learning again, you know, and I've learned yeah. to surf, to ride and enjoy challenges to my preconceptions and thinking and saying, mm -hmm. all right, let's, let's embrace this. And maybe, or maybe not, you know, I may or may not go all the way with this challenge to myself and my thinking, but let's see what happens. You know, maybe, maybe a hybrid will be created. It's, it's better than either. So, yeah. And in this time of, of disagreements and <laughs> people jumping to yeah, a position, I think it's useful to let's be more empathetic, more open to learning from others. Yeah. And, and really water is a common ground. I think we can all agree that, you know, we would love to have more access to clean, healthy, free flowing water. I mean, just from an economic perspective, it's cheaper, you know, it's like on and on. It's, it's something that I think 
you know, nobody was like, I want terrible polluted water and not enough of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And a depressor and a motivator for me has been learning about, you know, how we killed our local river, used to flow year round, used to be able to swim in swimming holes year round, drink your fill, fish dinner, come home. That's the easy water. And there was not a water company in Tucson. Hmm. People just had hand dug wells in their backyard, you know, no deeper than 20 feet. And so that was easy water for everybody. But when we started to mismanage the watersheds, the water table dropped, we killed the river, we killed the riparian forest. Then we had to start paying for water. Yeah. We wiped out our collective vision of what was even possible. So now we don't even remember that story. Right. And you need a lot of bottles of water to swim. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of Avion. (laughs) Yeah. And it's nowhere near as fun as a natural water body. And then what are you going to do with all that waste of the plastic? So, yeah. yeah. So that's another just great thing about a lot of the work I've been doing of late, thanks to learnings from Bill, Van, and Craig and others, is I'm helping regenerate water holes, Mm. regenerate springs, regenerate perennially flowing water. And that is the best payment to Mm. uh, go in and take a dip. And it's so good. (laughs) Well, I mean, along those same lines, I mean, you are somebody that's been traveling the world and learning new techniques, new strategies, uh, and then also teaching about this and then implementing. So you have that, that continual feedback loop. And I mean, you're probably more connected than anyone I know in this, this field, in this arena. So what have been some of the most remarkable projects that you've been involved with or know about that have actually significantly changed the local hydrology and water availability of a place? Mm. Okay, I'm going to answer that with a generality that's based on specifics. So big frustration of mine is coming from the U.S., we are so accustomed and perhaps even addicted to very high cost energy consuming resource systems. Mm-hmm. So when we want water, we say, all right, well, what's it going to take to pump import that water from elsewhere? Okay. If we don't like the quality of the water, all right, so I'm going to create a mechanical chemical filtration system, okay, which is going to consume more energy and I have to bring that in from elsewhere. So we just go to the expensive, maybe because we're so consumerist oriented, I don't know. But what has inspired me again and again throughout the world is subsistence farmers Mm. and uh, folks that may be poor financially, but are so rich ecologically because they are enhancing their local free resources by partnering with their local natural systems. Just again and again, that's the case. And so in, in my first book, volume one, there's a African water farmer from the driest region of Zimbabwe, Mr. Zephaniah Piri Maseko, who turned a, a wasteland of just eroded farm that was growing nothing. He turned that into a, an oasis by planting the rain. And I remember touring with him and I zero in on the tank and he's got a rainwater tank collecting water off the roof. And he's like, okay, tell me why you set this up and how it works and stuff. And he said, Brad, stop it. This is not where you should be looking. This is not it. 
you you are looking at a selfish man's investment and that that is not what we should be focusing on i was like what are you what are you talking about and he said look the only people who will ever drink from this tank are me and my family no one else will access this water so he said look just look a little further and then he showed me these series of vegetated mulch basins or rain gardens to which he directed the overflow water from his tank and runoff water from the dirt road and bare bedrock nearby and so on. He said, look, this, this is a strategy for everybody. I did not have to buy anything, no cement to create the tank. I said, I just moved dirt and, and I, I planted seeds. And I let the organic matter accumulate. So that infiltrates water into his system. His, the associated plants around it are just thriving, looking great, dramatically reducing the need for any supplemental irrigation from his tank. But the surplus water continues to move subsurface downstream or to the aquifer, which enhances the larger community and the larger watershed. And at the same time, he's reducing flooding downstream. He's reducing erosion and soil loss on his land. And he's reducing sediment deposition downstream, causing problems to those folks. That just shook me to the core in a great way. And the last time I was in Zimbabwe, I was really lucky. I got to go in 1995, and I, I got to return 20-some years later and visit Mr. Peary again and his family. Mm. And I was worried that maybe the stories and stuff that I remembered were not true. You know, maybe my eyes weren't yet educated enough or trained to really see, and maybe it wasn't as good as I thought. But when I went back, it was so much better than I remembered. <laughs> yeah. And the other people I met and interacted with who'd been inspired or taught by him, they were like leapfrogging him. They were doing so much better. And anyhow, I broke down crying one morning with my hosts who were uh, in a nearby community and had been teaching his, his strategies and thinking around the area. And uh, I, it was such a forceful cry. I was like, what is going on with me? I had no idea why I was crying and I couldn't stop. And I'm trying so hard to communicate and just get out of you know, sorry, I don't know why <laughs> I'm crying. And uh, anyhow, um, later, what I realized is I don't get what I got from Mr. Peary and all various people I worked with in Zimbabwe when I'm in the US. It is not an accessory for them. It's not a luxury. Hmm. It's, it's, all too often, it's a fad in the US. People yeah. like, oh, I want to do water harvesting. It looks cool. I want to be in the in crowd or whatever. I mean, there's deeper stuff than that. But we can get by without it. We can continue to rely on these extractive depleting systems. But they don't have a choice. And it was just so refreshing, honest, and real. And uh, you know, we have these incredible conversations where you know we'd be talking about the systems and how we tweak them and stuff and everyone was just so alive and engaged because this was key to their survival and not just their survival their thrival these people were thriving now mm. since they were doing this yeah so everything that they were doing was so accessible mm. to anyone 
you didn't even have to have a tool. You could do handwork you know, without a tool. Tools made it easier, but like a shovel. But you could make a digging stick or whatnot. So what I've continually strived to do in my books, teaching, design, and whatnot, how do we simplify this? Because people want to go right to a tank. I'm like, nope, we don't even start with the tank. You know, we, we start with the shovel work. Or we don't even start with the shovel work. We just start with planting seeds in the right place. So it's how, how can we, for the least amount of effort, energy, cost, money, get maximum regenerative life? And that, that's, that's the goal. And oftentimes with clients, they're like, yeah, you know, I'm thinking of bringing this in. I say, okay, I want to challenge you. What can you take out? You give me a list of things you want. What can you take out? And they're always like a slap to their face. Like, what do you mean take out? What are you doing? And I said, well, I think if you try that, you're going to beneficially simplify this project. I think it's going to be lower cost. I think that's something you should always be challenging yourself for. So, Yeah. I mean, I think there was just a lot of nuggets within <laughs> that discussion there. I mean, one that sticks out to me was when you were talking about uh, Mr. Peary and going back and, and visiting and how things have kind of changed and evolved and also on the social side where there are now other people that had been watching and learning and developing their own systems and how they've, it sounded like even taken things a little step further. And I think we've all been on this journey of trying to understand how we can make a difference. And, you know, for you, it's been water and uh, I'm pretty sure your, your water understanding was initially sparked by permaculture, would you say? Yeah. 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 And so it seems like, especially in a lot of the early permaculture courses, that was all about swales and big, large ponds. And as you mentioned, gabions and other infrastructural kind of larger systems mm. and how you've kind of changed over time of moving to these more low tech systems. Now, I, I see this all the time in either my, my teaching work or my design work you know, where people, you know, read a book, saw a YouTube video, and they're like, you know what, I'm going to Hugo culture everything. <laughs> I'm going to put in swales everywhere, whether it makes sense or not. And then they do it. Like what have been the big things for you that have kind of like shifted your thinking when it comes to managing water? Okay. Well, let me riff off that. And what I was saying earlier with an example in Alpine, Texas. Mm -hmm. So I've been asked to come in and teach a workshop there. And uh, so they wanted an all-day hands-on component. And we got permission to use the landscape, very large site around the town library. Now, there were some issues because the folks that managed that landscape didn't, unfortunately, interact with the workshop. You know, there's that social piece that mm. so didn't go as far as I would have liked it. But nonetheless, I had to rely on Google Earth to try and initiate the design. And then I had a local person kind of helping me out and spotting things on the ground. But I created this whole plan with a lot of boomerang swales, contour swales, some infiltration basins, all these strategies, these water harvesting strategies. And uh, it, was, it was fairly complex. It was only going to be dirt work, though. And we had a, a backhoe, the use of the operator and backhoe donated by the city utility and would be available for us the day before. So I get out onto the site and I'm like, okay, is the plan even going to work? <laughs> <laughs> and because I don't know, I was not 
basing my plan on the ground. I was basing it on the virtual, the unreal, the, the two-dimensional Google Earth image, not the three-dimensional site. And I started to panic when I'm out there running around with a laser level because I'm like, this is not working. The slopes are not as I thought they were based on the, the contour maps I was provided. Mm. So I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh, the plan's not going to work. The plan's not going to work. And the, then all that evaporated, all that panic evaporated. And I'm like, dude, cut it out. <laughs> the plan is nothing. What's important? You know, what's the desired effect here? What do you want to make happen? It's like, okay, I want to spread the water that's rapidly draining off the roof, the parking lot, right through the site and into the street, causing major flooding problems. I want to reduce that. And I want to spread this water out to the maximum surface area of this site that can then be the free irrigation source for the dying oak trees and stuff the community's planted and help recharge the aquifer. So when I was able to focus on that, not the strategy, but okay, what, what's the desired effect I want? Now it could, it could be any strategy. So let's just go. So then I moving around with the laser level and said, realized, oh, wow, there was this huge basin, natural basin, mm. that all the water was uh, flowing past because there was a very subtle ridgeline between mm. that basin and where the water was currently flowing off the roof parking lot and into the street and into a, a neighboring property's building. So I just realized, wow, all that needs to be done is a very small, simple diversion berm that redirects the water that's flown off the parking lot over that subtle ridgeline and just fill in that massive natural basin, which had a dead level spillover wow. um, <laughs> on the property edge. So we only needed the backhoe for like 30 minutes, whereas wow. we had the guy reserved for the day. And that was a eureka moment for me. And that's what I ultimately want to go for is how can I better understand what's happening on the site? So my interventions are minimal and better leveraged. So I'm going to get great effect with, with less work. So I dropped my strategy and just focused on, well, what's the needed effect and what's appropriate in the unique conditions of the site. And then, Oh, this is the best part. So we had the hands-on workshop the next day. So we're basically just doing finishing work you know, rakes and hand shovels and teaching like how we came upon this design and figured it out with the laser level. And, uh, and then we seeded some native vegetation seed. And then just as we finish up, this insane thunderstorm came in and just wham, just hit us. It was just this incredible flooding storm and everything worked perfectly. <laughs> and uh, the, the uh, adjoining property, no more flooding of their building. All the water just totally filled up the basin. And it took a good hour before that basin was totally full. But it did fill up and then spilled, not an erosive, channelized way into the street, but a very calm, spread out sheet flow manner, almost the entire north end of the property, rather than just this one spot. So if they choose to, they could plant a ton of street trees irrigated by the same system, further capitalize on, on that water before it spills. And I have a YouTube video of this a storm. Oh. If people want to check it out, I'll, uh, I'll send you the link afterwards. Yeah, that'd be great. I'll, I'll get it up in, in the show notes. 
Yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful story of how, <laughs> how oftentimes we get in our own ways and try to kind of design how we think it should be. But then when we really just step back and, and ask ourselves, like, what are our go- what are the actual goals? Yeah. And how can we achieve this in another fashion that design really emerges? Yeah. And when walking watersheds with Bill Zedike, Van Clothier, Craig Sponholt, Steve Ruman, and others, other fluvial rodents, I say that in a good way, they're all striving to be beavers. <laughs> so yeah, it's given me a whole new way of seeing because very often, particularly in alpine areas, I see these eroding drainages in the grasslands. And then they ask me, so where's the natural drainage? And when I first walked with them, I'm like, well, it's right here where we've got this eroding gully. And they're Mm. like, no. Does that look natural to you? Does that look healthy? I said, no, it doesn't look healthy. (laughs) Okay, well, look for something that looks more natural and healthy. And then I see above what I thought was just like a terrace, like a waterway terrace. That was the original waterway. And this eroded gully that we're walking was an old wagon road. Uh, that later became a Jeep road. And it captured the runoff that used to go to the original healthy drainage. And then water started flowing down the unvegetated, unstabilized wheel ruts. And it just got worse and worse. Hmm. So kind of like the Alpine project, they do these great things where they, if it's higher in the watershed, like a sheet flow spreader or a pond and plug, or this, this hybrid plug and spread swale system. And uh, they just divert the water out of the eroded channel and back into the original. And things just take off in such a great way. And again, it's in my early days of this work, I never would have gotten seen the possibility for something so subtle and something mm. so effective. Because I was coming from, all right, where do I get to put in the gabion? I'm trying to stick my square peg of a gabion in the round hole and i'm not even seeing the waterway yeah <laughs> the real yeah. waterway so um so a lot of it is learning to see and with natural systems being our teacher as opposed to engineering schools or so on and i've tried to in the new editions of the book really pepper them with a lot of that so for example, I removed the whole chapter on gabions. You know, just the title is bad. It's just focused on a single strategy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now the chapter is called in-channel strategies. Okay. Ah, so, yes. And I've put a whole bunch of new natural patterns of water and sediment flow and then principles, like guidelines of, well, all right, look for these patterns. Are they in existence and how might you be able to work with them? So I'll try and give you one example. It's kind of hard doing it verbally without the visuals. And that's why I have so many illustrations in the book. But there's a pattern that water will flow perpendicular to anything it flows over. So if you put a log across a creek perpendicular, water will just keep going straight down the creek as it did. Mm -hmm. But if you put the log in at an angle, 45 degree angle to the flow of the water in the creek, now the water will be diverted into the bank and I'll start to eat the bank. Mm-hmm. And you can do another shape. You can create like an arch. So let's say you have a U where the, the bend of the U is upstream and the two legs of the U are downstream. Yep. Okay. 
So now that's going to create a pool because water is going to be flowing in and over this thing at different angles and it's going to scour because mm. you're concentrating the water into the center. So you can create an ephemeral pool for wildlife or bathing, whatever. And then you can reverse that U and create kind of like a half moon shape, a media luna where the dip is on the downstream side and the arms go upstream. And most of the structure should be dead level except for the very ends, which go upstream so water can't flow around it. It has to flow okay. over and through it. Now it spreads the flow out. It makes the flow more shallow and sediment will drop out rather than being picked up. So instead of a scour pool, you create a sediment dump and you seed it with the vegetation that will thrive and grow through that sediment. So unlike doing a, and you can do these on the broad landscape too. They don't have to be in drainages. So instead of doing the typical permaculture swale, that has got a basin on the upslope side and a berm on the downslope side that in a high sediment flow zone will just fill up with sediment and blow out. Yep. yep. Because or that's what we're taught to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, we weren't taught to have it blow out, but we were taught that that's the, that's the strategy. So don't do that in that context of high sediment flow. A sheet flow spreader, of rock with seed below the rock of vegetation will grow through the sediment. Or sometimes you can do it in very dry environments with prickly pear um, yep. planted in the shape of the sheet flow spreader. So vegetation's doing it right from the get-go. Anyhow, based on the desired effect, what needs to happen? Do we need to eat the banks to create a more meandering flow, which will then increase the distance water needs to travel from the top to the bottom? slow it down and enable more sediment to drop out so we can then start filling in eroded drainages just because the water's moving longer and slower. Mm -hmm. So it starts to fill itself. We don't have to use gabions. We're just enabling a more meandering flow. Or uh, do we want to create that pool, as I mentioned, or do we want to create a sheet flow spreader like on the downslope side of a culvert or something? My hope, and I've given examples in the books, is people will custom design to what's going on in their site and they'll even hybridize. And I've got some great examples of some structures that Craig Sponholtz did of watershed artisans where he's diverting water off a dirt road with a rolling dip that then careens down the super steep slope, which would be very erosive. Mm -hmm. So he, he just creates a simple rock mulch rundown. Okay. So the water's flowing over the rock and that's stabilized and, he puts seed down first, now vegetation's anchoring the rock. In. Then instead of just doing that all the way to the bottom, which is what you all too often see, you know, just yep. get the water moving through this steep area as quickly as possible. Halfway down, he creates a, a bowl, a pool, mm -hmm. okay, by then creating that U-shape. And then this pool spills dead level over its whole downstream edge. So he's now shifted channelized flow that was coming down that steep section in which the water's deeper, there's more volume of it, and it's faster, all mm -hmm. eroding, all picking up, all potentially picking up stuff. At this pool, he, he flips it. Now he's sheet flow spreading the water, reducing the depth, reducing the speed, reducing the volume at any one point, and it starts dropping sediment out. Wow. And then he continues this alluvial fan-like shape all the way to the bottom. So instead of having an erosive cut at the bottom, he has this thriving building alluvial fan where the sediment keeps building. Was there a kind of a natural nick point in that slope where that first 
kind of pooling area was established or is it like still on that, that steep slope where that it's was still on uh, the steep slope? Yeah. Oh, wow. And then he's got abundant grasses growing in the alluvial mm. fan. So I've, yeah, I've got great photos showing it being built during the water flow and the after effect. And I just think that kind of thing is so key because it breaks us out of, you know, a strategy yeah. to, oh, okay, well, what needs to happen here? We got to get the water off the road. So that faster, steeper channel right at the road's edge, that makes sense there. So we don't have pooling on the road and because it's dirt road, but at the best opportunity, the best chance where we can flip it around and start to hydrate rather than dehydrate, he did it. And just awesome effect. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, along those lines, I mean, you're talking about how you've changed up your uh, more recent editions of your books with uh, taking out things like the Gabions and renaming some of these strategies, including others. Do you want to take a second and just talk about what main changes you have in the third edition of the books out there now? Sure. Yeah. Well, some of the other changes are they're now full color. And mm. a big reason for that is I want, as soon as people open the book to be inspired and drawn in and not just practitioners, but let's say you're showing a client or a student or, or a policymaker, this stuff, the more inviting that image, the more success we're going to have. Um, mm. Then I, I just got super anal or detailed and uh, reworked the vast majority of all the illustrations in the books. So your average reader who's read the previous editions may not even see the bulk of the changes. But for those like myself who really study a diagram to see, okay, what are the subtleties that we really need to pay attention to? They're all in there now. Oh, beautiful. Um, yeah. And uh, it's been great um, just seeing how policy has changed in the 10 some years since the original editions of the books came out. Mm -hmm. So for example, gray water harvesting, when I came out with my initial book, Arizona was the only state where you could legally and very effectively harvest gray water with no permit, inspection, or fee as long as you were following common sense guidelines. And they could be all a gravity-fed system, no tanks, you know, very cheap, just directing the water to mulch and vegetated basins. Since then, states throughout the Western US have updated their codes. And Utah is right on the cusp of being the next one. But along with that, Arizona's gone further and revised its gray water laws. Hmm. And I wanted people to be aware of that. So they're not basing policy change in their state or community on the old rule, but the new rule. So it's now become a lot easier to harvest drinking fountain gray water. Oh. To harvest gray water in commercial properties and to harvest uh, dark gray water, the kitchen sink water. So the way the rule was originally written, it was confusing and it made it sound as though you had to create your kitchen sink dark gray water harvesting system to handle all the house's water. That's been clarified. You only have to handle the kitchen sink water. Oh, that's beautiful. it. So that's cut the cost of the system by more than half. Um, and we now have uh, gray water harvesting rebates. So it'll give you up to $1,000 to harvest your gray water if you go through a 
free three-hour class, which is great because that class, for people that are new to this, it shows them, hey, this is what you're going to need to watch out for in terms of fly-by-night contractors that don't really know what they're doing and might want to take advantage of you. Mm-hmm. So as a result, oftentimes the homeowner knows much more than the, many of the contractors, just educating <laughs> contractors. Yeah. So it's now legal statewide in Arizona. You can build a home with no sewer and no septic hookup. Wow. It, it's all directing its gray water to gray water harvesting strategies uh, in the landscape and the kitchen sink dark gray water into other strategies. And then the toilet's a compost toilet. Wow. Yeah. That is huge. I mean... Brooke Sarson and her family and our family have been building a couple of houses and developing our property. And we have not been able to even change the size of the septic or the leach lines. You know, it's like, regardless that we have a permitted whole house gray water system, mm-hmm. all gravity, but, you know, we, we're not allowed to do composting toilets legally. Mm. You know, we still have to put in the septic as if all of that gray water is going to go to the septic tank. And so it just ends up quite overkill, you know, huge expense Yeah, that you guys don't have to do. And that's, that's, a, that's a very beautiful thing. Yeah. And I, I have the story of all that in the new edition of volume two, along with the specifications, the illustrations and everything. So you can show your policymakers, and I find that their fear threshold drops considerably when they see another state, another municipality is doing this, and it's proven. Yeah, so hopefully that will that will help you in this. And it took the way we changed the Arizona law. It was just a couple dozen people doing this. Yeah. Oh, and state. Yeah. I mean, I've always been impressed with like what has been accomplished in, you know, particularly it seems like Pima County seems to spearhead a lot of these things and whether it's that composting toilet or the gray water laws. I mean, for the rest of the U.S., Arizona doesn't always get a great rap when it comes to like their policies, but really from a, you know, water side and, and waste management, I mean, they're leading some of these kind of charges. Yeah. And that's in part due to what's unique about the Tucson area. So Mm. until the 1990s, after we killed our local rivers, our only water source was our dwindling groundwater. Yeah. And then we got the Central Arizona Project Canal that pumps water 300 miles from the Colorado River and 3,000 feet uphill from river to Tucson, Phoenix. But that is not a sustainable system because by any means, because it's the single largest consumer of electricity in the state, because of how much energy it takes to pump that water uphill. And it's a single largest emitter of carbon in the state because we're using a coal-burning power plant to run those pumps. But we can't count on that water because Arizona is at the bottom of the water rights. So California gets water out of the Colorado way before Arizona. So if California, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, if they all take their share, there's nothing left for us. Mm -hmm. So we're in a position where we have to look for alternatives. And I think that's another great example of a lot of times people can freak out like, oh, my God, our water, it's not secure. And it's like, hey, embrace that. Okay, so jump in. Look look at it further. Look at it more deeply. You have water currently. How can you make it go further? How can you clean Mm -hmm. it rather than pollute it? The options are there. We just have to be willing to look for them and to try and make them happen. Yeah. I mean, it's not really 
coming back to that, uh, it's not about how much water we have, but how many times we can utilize it that gives yeah. us that effective water. And here's, here's a thing, here's a challenge I'd like to put out to your listeners in <laughs> California, anywhere, wherever they are. Okay. So up till now, Tucson has been a net extractor of water from our groundwater, from our now dead river, from the, and now the Colorado River, which is dying. But more rain falls on the desert community of Tucson than all its citizens consume of municipal water in a year. Okay, so there's the potential. So the water already exists. Tucson could choose to be a net infiltrator, a net giver back of water to our aquifer, to the Santa Cruz River, bring it back, to the Colorado River. We have more than enough water to do that, to give back more than we take. Every community could do this. So we can break the cycle in the story of things are just getting worse over time. No, we, we already have the know-how, the ability to flip it 180 de degrees. Now, it, it's hard because it is a 180 degree flip in our thinking. Mm -hmm. But if we're willing to go there, and this is why it's so powerful and needed to have demonstration sites. So people can go and see it, experience it. It's not just a concept. And this is also why it's so important that we never get lazy and stop evolving our demonstration sites. So, you know, we're, we're my brother and his family and I, we're harvesting 100,000 gallons of rainwater and street runoff a year on our eighth of an acre urban lot and surrounding public right-of-way. You know, we started that back in the 90s. So we could have just stopped. But I keep pushing myself and actually when i give tours and stuff students push me i love that too maybe not the first time maybe the first time i'm a little ticked off but then i get over it and i realize oh that challenge is a good one so <laughs> like when we first did our, our systems we were bootstrapping it i didn't have the calculations that i have now and have put into my books so i was guesstimating how big the system should be but now with very simple calculations a number of which have been revised and new ones that I've put into the new editions of the books. Um, I can figure out exactly how big the capacity should ideally be and mm -hmm. what the cost per gallon is and all that. Mm. So I can compare my earthwork rain garden capacity and cost per gallon to a tank. Oh, and yeah. rain gardens win, man, hands down. Yep. Because <laughs> it also doubles as flood control and so much more. But a big thing was I way underbuilt my initial systems. So I've been going back and dramatically expanding the capacity. And this is something I found with the city of Tucson too. So the city of Tucson looked at when creating the commercial water harvesting ordinance, where a commercial property needs to provide at least 50% of its irrigation demand with free on-site harvested water with no tanks, just passive earthworks. Yep. It's all based on the average rain, which is a half inch. And I do not think that it, it's a great start, but I do not think that's correct. I think we need to design it based on extremes. So it's, it's common. It is definitely common to get two one inch rainstorms within a week of each other. So we're getting storms where we get these storm cells dropping six inches of rain in less than an hour on wow. different parts of town. So I think we need to design our earthworks to handle a minimum of a two inch rainstorm. Mm -hmm. So we're now at a size that we can easily handle above average 
storm events, which is absolutely needed when we are trying to reduce flooding. It's in the higher than normal events that we're going to have more of this flooding. And it's essential that we do this to mitigate drought because we may not get another rain after that two inch rain event or that six inch rain event for another six months or more. Yeah. yeah. So we better bank up as much of that water as possible in the living soils and vegetation to get us through that drought or dry season. So yeah, these are all key. And, and that way too, we stay energetic and passionate about our stuff rather than getting bored of it or burnt out. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes more exciting for others too. Like, Oh, how'd you learn that? How'd you go about that? So, yeah. Well, again, there was a lot of uh, gems in that. I mean, one thing that was coming up for me when you were talking there is about demonstration sites and how things have evolved for you. And I know seeing your place over the years here and uh, whatnot, when you've gone through various phases where you were technically breaking the law. And I wonder if you can touch upon that and now how some of those things like the curb cuts and you know even the composting toilet, like when you were originally putting that in and, and doing tours of this kind of stuff, you were technically an outlaw. <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, when I was at the localizing California waters conference earlier this year in Yosemite, I loved a term that people were using up there, which uh -huh. is these strategies were not illegal. Okay. Technically, yes, they were, but the term I prefer is they were all pre-legal. Yes. Yes. They, they were changes that needed to happen, but needed to be proven and, mm -hmm. and shown to work. So I definitely had a lot of fear when I was initially doing those curb cuts. You know, I'd only do them on a Sunday morning when no one from the city was watching. But it was always, man, is the hammer going to come down on me? And it was a strategy I wanted to share with clients and neighbors, but they weren't willing to take that risk until we got it legalized. But what enabled us to legalize it is we found allies um, within the city bureaucracy and started plotting or planning meetings with them and staff in various departments like flood control, transportation, and so on. And at the initial meeting, we asked the city officials, what are your problems along neighborhood streets? And they said, okay, well, we've got excessive flooding. We've got vape vaporization of the asphalt creating cracks and potholes because we've got excessively hot temperatures. Then we have heat stress-related illnesses of the residents along these streets. We have too much litter, crime, and so on, okay? So we said, all right, so, so we started by trying to draw from them what are they trying to address instead of just pushing for what we want from them. So we said, okay, great. We'd like to help you address all of these issues, and we think we've got a strategy that can go a long way in helping with that. And then we explained, okay, if we pull more water off the street, there's less flooding of the street. If we use that water for vegetation, the vegetation uses and evapotranspires that water. So it doesn't hang out under the street and cause structural issues. It can then grow shade that shades and cools the street, reducing the vaporization of the asphalt. It makes it a more livable, enjoyable spot for people to be outdoors and thus see one another, maybe interact, maybe get to know one another. So you start to know your neighbors as opposed to them, everyone being a stranger. Um, and let's create neighborhood forester projects where people are helping steward, take care of, prune, plant this vegetation. So now it's less burden on the city and 
you've got more of the people that live on the street who care most about the street because that's where they live. Okay. They love where they live and they're going to love it more when they interact more. So it's less of a financial burden and staff burden on the city. So all, all that was uh, huge. And now these street runoff harvesting curb cuts have been legalized. They've been rebated. You can get up to a $2,000 rebate to put them in and mandated in all new city road construction or major road renovation. So, I mean, that's huge. That's, that's the 180 degree shift right there. Yeah. And then I, you mentioned compost toilets. So I just want to touch on that. So for a long time, it's been legal to do manufactured compost toilets that have a NSF stamp. Um, was that National Safety Federation or what? I can't remember what NSF stands for. But those are really expensive toilets. They're $3,000 minimum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's recently happened is we've legalized statewide thanks to work initiating in Southern Arizona, inexpensive site-built compost toilets that you can build yourself for $300 as opposed to $3,000. Or you can buy a kit that's got all the parts. You just need to assemble it. That'll cost you $800, but still dramatically less than the $3,000 plus. And it's much higher capacity system as well. And you get to do a free workshop with it. Yeah. So what's great here is this is enabling far more people with less financial resources, which kind of is a tie back to what I was saying about people I've been able to work with in rural Africa, rural US, Nepal, elsewhere, where people don't have the financial ability. So how do we simplify the system, make it more accessible? So now many more people can legally uh, deposit their nutrients in the carbon cycle, the soil-based carbon cycle, which generates fertility and life, as opposed to depositing our human waste in the hydrologic cycle, in the drinking water that's in a flush toilet, which immediately turns that resource of drinking water into toxic waste, sewage. That's messed up. Okay. The most dangerous and common diseases to humans are those caused by fecal matter, human fecal matter getting into our water. So why by law do we have to put our fecal matter, not just in water, but in drinking water? Yeah, yeah. Cleaned up to the point of drinking water and then (laughs) all that expense and trying to separate it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this enabling these shifts brings a huge amount of joy to me and others. So um, it used to be that when I would go near a flush toilet, my sphincter would just just, (laughs) just freeze up, okay? And I get constipated. Because I knew what was going to happen if I let that turd drop into the bowl and the drinking water. So I just couldn't deal with that. When I got the compost toilet, oh, everything just flowed. So good. No more constipation. I mean, it's just a joy to use it. Because every time I'm there making a deposit into the fertile nest of uh, carbon-based sawdust, you know, which is a waste product from local woodworkers, so I'm turning their waste into resource. And that carbon counters the nitrogen of the fecal matter so there's no odor and kickstarts the composting process. I am literally making a deposit. I'm literally making an investment in greater fertility, more life, a healthier system at, at no cost. There's no bill. There's no bill for the sewage treatment or for the importation of the water. It's, I'm just keeping everything on site. 
Yeah. I mean, I love it. I'll giggle on the toilet because, <laughs> uh, because I know I'm contributing and, uh, and I'm learning, uh, you know, and then I'll crank the aging barrels of the compost and I'm seeing how it breaks down. I'm seeing the mushrooms that erupt and grow from it and the other life. And it, it drops the fear. You know, I used to be a, a, a turdophobe, you know, I was freaked out about Tur- I, I still am not, I don't like turds. Okay. Um, they stink. It's not your thing. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not my thing. I, I like turd humor. I love what turds can become yeah. if we compost and manage them the right way. Yeah. Turning them back into that, that resource and, and yeah. to adding to it, it, it really, as you build that carbon rich compost, which you're applying to your soil, it is also positively impacting the water resources because that means your soils are healthier and can contain more water for longer into that dry season as well. Yeah. So again, that win-win. Yes. The win-win-win-win-win. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's a whole nother way of contributing to that soil carbon sponge that the Australian microbiologist, climatologist, Walter Jenny was talking about of mm-hmm. how do we get more of the earth's surface covered with healthy living soil and vegetation that will help mitigate extremes and thermoregulate the temperatures on this planet as they were all intended to do. Yeah. Yeah. The, which is the work that we have, I think for all of us right now on this planet, like, I mean, what other work can we really participate in? That's going to have any meaning a hundred years from now. Yeah. And I'd say it's not just the work, it's the play, or at least ah, for yes. me. Yeah. So I love it when it rains. I am running out there in my bathing suit and with a shovel. And I love to see how the water is moving. I love to make subtle shifts. And uh, I learn so much. And before the rains, when I look at the weather report, I'm going out there and I'm, I'm planting seed in my water harvesting earthworks and whatnot. So, oh, that's, sorry, that, just say this real quick. So when we started our neighborhood forestry, like back in 1996, we started an annual food-bearing native tree planting project in our neighborhood. And we've been doing it every year. And since then, we've planted over 1,500 native food-bearing trees in the neighborhood. But that has evolved. It used to just be planting the vegetation and the trees in this shallow basin to capture direct rainfall. But we realized we're missing the bulk of the water and that the bulk of the water is flowing down the street. So then we lowered the basins to make them lower than the street and redirected the water off the street to the basins. And we got dramatically faster, healthier, abundant growth. But then we realized, man, we're still not making these big enough. We got to make them even bigger to handle the, the extremes, not just the average rainstorms. And we have to be doing the understory plantings as well as the overstory. So we've got all layers of the food forest. Mm-hmm. And uh, so now in our tree planting program, you can't even get a tree if you, until you agree to have a basin that is at least five feet long. I'm sorry, five feet wide, eight feet long, and 18 inches deep. Wow. So it'll have over a 4,500 gallon annual capacity. Wow. And uh, so that is really up in the game on how much we're reducing flooding, how much we're banking water and getting us through drought, and we're getting much bigger, healthier canopies. Uh, shading and mitigating uh, temperature extremes and growing more food, creating wildlife corridors, creating more livable place. 
So all that just brings a lot of joy for me and others. And I've learned in this process where we used to bring in nursery-grown plants. We still do. Um, but uh, I've learned that if we first create these water-harvesting earthworks, if we don't have the money for nursery-grown plants, that's okay. We can just plant the seed where mm -hmm. we've already planted the rain, and we do so at the beginning of the rainy seasons. And we get even healthier vegetation because its roots have never been bound up by the pot. Yeah. And... Uh, they have deeper tap roots and they grow faster and, uh, and it's free. It's just, we just got to collect the seed, which is more the joy piece because that's going to get me out into the desert, which is my ultimate learning laboratory um, and place of inspiration. And I'm going to look for the plants that have the healthiest growth shape or have the densest fruit clusters ripening at the best times of the year. So I'm selecting for better stuff that I'm then going to bring home. And maybe it's not just seed, maybe it's cuttings like of cacti. Uh, and uh, so we're enhancing the quality and the diversity of what's grown around us at the same time. Beautiful. Yeah. So it's evolving, getting better. Yeah. Nice. And then as we learn from others, different ways you can use these, these plant foods, or plant medicines, like, oh, our learning deepens even more. We learn from others little tricks on scarifying the seed or whatnot that increases our germination rate. The learning never ends. Or we learn, oh, we could actually create even better, more useful guilds. So, for example, you guys have Choya cactus out in California too, Southern California. So mm -hmm. the, the flower buds, I'm not talking about the fruit, I'm talking about the flower bud just before the flower opens, are edible, okay? And they're higher in calcium than milk by volume. So, uh, but you need to dethorn it before you eat it. So we've learned from indigenous Tona Autumn elders um, and, and teachers' friends that uh, the funnest way, perhaps a more efficient way, is to get a sprig of a, a local bush like triangle leaf bursage, which is a sticky mm. leaf bush. So it, it grabs the thorns and you, like a paintbrush, you brush off the thorns before you pick the flower bud from the cactus. So it's already dethorned before you pick it. And it's also a reason for you to hang out longer with the plants out there. Yeah. So you're going to learn more. You're going to see which native pollinators come in, which sleep in the flowers. You're going to see what eats or doesn't eat the various things because you want to spend more time out there. You need to spend more time out there and you want to spend more time out there. You start to see which foods the wildlife are more readily eating. You're like, oh, those are the tastier ones. So that's the one I want to collect from. Yeah, so all that stuff's really essential too. So we're now planting cuttings of the choya cactus from the most abundant producing, flower bud producing cactus we find when we're out and about. And there's over 12 different colors of flower. Wow. So we're, we're then taking cuttings and marking what flower the color is, how big the bud is, and propagating that throughout the neighborhood. So we actually have um, more efficient, we're growing more efficient harvests than you could get out in the desert because mm -hmm. we're, we're selecting them for those characteristics. And then we plant guild associates of the triangle leaf bursage at the base of these choya 
So we have the plant needed to brush off the thorns. Creosote works great too for that. Yeah. There's so so many ways that we have to learn how to adapt and, and re-indigenize to place. Yes. And yeah. you know, relearning like what the foods that we have available and then realizing too that it's not just a static part of our existence that we are this continually evolving uh, entity that is a species on this planet and i love how you were talking about now selecting off the ones that are going to be different colored flowers i'm sure you're also noticing certain cacti that maybe maybe have larger smaller thorns or yes. ones that come off easier or less easy than others. And it's like all of those little nuances that you begin to kind of select and create those foods of the future that are really going to be enabling us to thrive in place. Co-create. Like coming back. To, yeah. Co-create. Yeah. yeah. That, that are bringing us back into this existence with living systems where we are then a part of that. Yeah. We're a partner. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Not another. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that's all been great. Another key thing I've been really pushing in my work is how can I make it easier to do the right thing? Or how can I make it easier to step into a challenge? Mm -hmm. So um, conventionally, it's easier to go to a plant nursery and buy all these domesticated plants from elsewhere. So I've been forcing myself, I'm like, no, I have to first try and explore and expand the local native perennial plant palette before I go into the more domesticated plant palette. So I'm surrounding myself with more of these native plants that there's less readily available information on, on how you use it, you know, how you harvest cook it and so on. Um, there's a few recipes. So that's pushing me to experiment because that's what's right there. So in my little herb garden, it's wild oregano. It's not Greek mm -hmm. oregano. It's the, the oregano native to here. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm becoming more in tune with its flavor subtleties and what it works with and what it doesn't. It's forcing me to experiment and engage. And um, all too often, I think things are set up to, to lessen our engagement, and I want to increase it. Even uh, like in my one-car garage turned cottage or garage or my shed-sized condo, my shondo. <laughs> so I set it up to um, heat and cool itself for free with passive sun and shade harvesting strategies, which all these strategies I've learned and more, I've packed into the new edition of Volume 1. So some people that might come to my place might get a little freaked out, but I love it. So uh, it, I've designed it so it's easier for me to open up a window at night for free cooling ventilation than it is to turn on the backup cooler, of which I placed consciously, purposefully, the switch of that cooler in a very inconvenient place. Okay, so uh, I can still turn it on, but I'm first going to utilize the free cooling strategies to minimize or, or even eliminate my need for it. Um, and that also then it's got me engaged with, you know, I staggered the heights of the windows. So even when there's no breeze, they generate their own breeze hmm. through since hot air rises through convection. Yeah. So I'm able to then see how's that working or not working. And, and, 
if I open the window more or less, how does it affect it? If I change the direction, the window can be open because I have casement windows. So they have hinges on one side. Mm -hmm. So, you know, over time I've switched the direction of those hinges to be more in alignment with my local winds. Uh, mm -hmm. So all that, so it, it goes beyond the, the living plant world and goes right into the building world too. Yeah. Well, I mean, along, along those notes, Brad, I think we could continue on and keep a conversation going for, you know, days exploring all of these different avenues and like all of the wealth and knowledge that you have. But for people that just want to kind of get a little bit more information about, you know, your books, where can they find, you know, some of the, uh, well, where can they purchase your books? Yeah. So uh, the best place is harvestingrainwater.com. Because uh, harvestingrainwater.com is, is my website. So um, you can buy the books direct from me, no middle person getting a cut. Um, and I sell them at deep discount uh, on my site. Uh, and by buying them direct from me, that dramatically increases the amount of resources I'm able to reinvest in the uh, revisions of my books and, uh, um, and creating new books, such as the... I just kind of came out with ebook editions mm -hmm. along with the print editions of my books. So people that live outside the U S don't have to pay the crazy international shipping rates. Um, and the other great thing about the ebook is even myself, I've got all my books on my phone, so yeah. I can't remember all the calculations and everything I've got in there. So anytime I'm with a client, a student, I can just whip out my phone, pull up an image or a calculation and boom, they see it. It's right there. Uh, so, uh, and then, uh, for some of the native wild food resources, go to desertharvesters.org and check out, uh, a cookbook, eat mesquite and more a cookbook for Sonoran desert foods and living, even if you're not in the Sonoran desert, because, um, there are, uh, many of the plants in there, or at least family members of those plants you can find throughout Americas, um, and, and the world. So many of them you can find throughout California. Um, and we meant for that book to be kind of a template that yeah. where people can create a similar like book wherever they are, because you can open it to any month of the year and see what's harvestable and plantable at that time. Various recipes, there's traditional recipes, but a lot of fusion hybrids. Um, and it's been a great way for people from other places to become more deeply rooted to this place. Yeah. So for example, we've got recipes of India from India, Asian India, uh, um, non bread made with mesquite oh, and wow. prickly pear cactus fruit chutneys. Wow. Okay. And uh, so it's great the folks that created those recipes, you know, they've come from India and bringing that rich culinary uh, heritage and then used it to tap into the abundance of what's unique to here. Yeah. Um, and uh, people can also check out uh, the events page of my website at harvestingrainwater.com for, um, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to come back to, into California and elsewhere. I'm starting to speak publicly again more now I've released the books. Um, got a bunch of videos and free information on the website as well that people can check out. And I, I really recommend people uh, ask their local libraries, public libraries, school libraries, to carry these books in print and and ebook format. Um, and also what would be hugely helpful for me is if any of you have read the new editions of the book, 
Um, please uh, write reviews, post reviews on Amazon, Goodreads, or whatever bookseller you got it from. And you don't have to have bought the book from Amazon to post a review. You just have to have read the book. <laughs> and uh, and I, I only want people to write a review if they enjoyed the book after actually reading, reading it. it. Yeah, because I can tell when they just bought the book and they wrote a review and it's lame because <laughs> they, they didn't engage. It's obvious to everybody. So the reason I wrote the books is so they'd be read and used. So tap in, you like it, then write a review and it'll be awesome. Even if your grammar sucks, it doesn't matter. They'll be able to see the heart, the spirit, the knowledge is there. So Yeah, it's real. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to say to uh, our listeners before we uh, end the show here? Uh, There's kind of a, a tangent, but uh, check out the storytelling page of my website. So I've been doing more uh, live storytelling events, kind of moth style. Oh. So uh, I think people might enjoy that. And uh, I keep checking back. Uh, there's another story I just did. Should have it posted in a month or so. Oh, great. I'll have to check that out. I mean, your website always has a wealth of information. Every time I seem to go back there, I'm finding new things and I feel like I get sucked in for an hour or two at a time. And I haven't even seen the storytelling one yet. So. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to also uh, in 2020 get a uh, Spanish edition. Oh, yeah. That volume went out. So working on that now so we'll see how that goes okay yeah. excellent here's open all yeah all right well i appreciate you taking the time brad and we hope to have you on the show again at some point keeping this discussion going and just inspiring people to really get out there and start making a difference in their local communities that'd be great Thank you. love to come back all right awesome well, there you have it. That wraps up our interview with Brad Lancaster. I hope you enjoyed this dialogue. There was so much powerful information in there that we can really begin to look at when we start to understand that the water that falls around us has enormous potential. And for years and years, we as a human species have been just mismanaging that resource. And Brad's work is all about empowering you to engage in that experience of making the world a better place through water harvesting. Show notes for this show can be found at permacultureforthefuture.com slash episode three. And coming up on next week's show, we're joined by an old friend, Bill McDorman, to talk about saving seeds really breaking down and demystifying this process, this 10,000-year-old-plus tradition that we have of saving our seeds. So you don't want to miss now. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to us on whatever app that you're listening to this podcast on. That way you're always aware when, when new episodes drop. And lastly, if you love the show, consider rating and reviewing us. This helps us reach a wider audience and helps us make a greater change in each of our local communities, which can grow into a movement which makes an impact at the global scale. So that's it for this week. Stick around. See you all next week. In the meantime, get out there and do some good.